Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today's reading is Exodus chapters 22 through 24. The Ten Commandments were given to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. They were given to him verbally at that point. Then beginning in chapter 21 verse 1, we find these words. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. And then the balance of chapter 21 has another list of laws. That brings us to chapter 22 where the law giving continues. Chapter 22 verse 1. We have beginning here some property loss laws in Israel. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief be found breaking up and be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him, for he should make full restitution. If he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. If a man shall cause a field or vineyard to be eaten, and shall put in his beast, and shall feed in another man's field of the best of his own field, and of the best of his own vineyard shall he make restitution. If fire break out and catch in thorns, so that the stacks of corn, or the standing corn, or the corn, be consumed therewith, he that kindleth the fire shall surely make restitution. If a man shall deliver unto his neighbor money or stuff to keep, and it be stolen out of the man's house, if the thief be found, let him pay double. If the thief be not found, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges to see whether he have put his hand unto his neighbor's goods. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for ox, for ass, for sheep, for raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another challengeth to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, and whom the judges shall condemn, he shall pay double unto his neighbor." If a man deliver unto his neighbor an ass or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep, and it die or be hurt or driven away, no man seeing it, then shall an oath of the Lord be between them both, that he hath not put his hand unto his neighbor's goods, and the owner of it shall accept thereof, and he shall not make it good. And if it be stolen from him, he shall make restitution unto the owner thereof. If it be torn in pieces, then let him bring it for witness, and he shall not make good that which is torn. And if a man borrow aught of his neighbor, and it be hurt or die, the owner thereof being not with it, he shall surely make it good. But if the owner thereof be with it, he shall not make it good, for it be an hired thing. It came for his hire. Now, as we mentioned when we were talking about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were categories of law. The Jews through the centuries have numbered the individual commandments contained in the Torah, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy, at 613. 
These laws put meat on the skeleton, so to speak, using a metaphor. When you analyze the first four of the Ten Commandments, you see they deal with Israel's relationship with God himself. Then the last six deal with man's relationship with others. Again, the Ten Commandments are categories, and all of these individual laws fill in the blanks, so to speak. You'll notice that some of these laws deal with criminal trespasses, while others deal with civil issues. Incidentally, the session of the giving of the law to Moses by God began in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. And that was following the preceding session where God issued the Ten Commandments. Notice the role of the judges in the execution of these laws. Recall that back in Exodus chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law gave him some pointers on organizational structuring which Moses adopted. This provided for the judges which we see executing judgment in these matters of law. In verses 1 through 4, we see the punishment for a thief. If the thief loses his life in the process of the break-in, no one is held accountable for the loss of life. If he manages to live through the ordeal, he cannot be executed, but he must make double restitution. If he doesn't have it, he can be sold into slavery as a means for repayment. Now, grazing your cattle in a neighbor's field is treated as stealing, and the offended party is permitted to receive the best of the offender's field as repayment. We see that in verse 5. The arsonist, whether it's intentional or otherwise, he's responsible for restitution we see in verse 6. Some civil issues are dealt with in verses 7 to 15, dealing with restitution after property loss more serious when we get to chapter 22 verse 16 some life issues here verse 16 and if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her he shall surely endow her to be his wife if her father utterly refused to give her unto him he should pay money according to the dowry of virgins thou shalt not suffer a witch to live whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death he that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with a sword." and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Verses 16 and 17 here present an interesting situation. It says, And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuse to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. I suppose if she has a handsome enough sum of money, to offer a prospective husband, she might be able to marry in the future because she's wealthy, not a virgin. He can't help but recognize that an individual's motivation, whether it was on purpose or accidental, is taken into consideration throughout the law, but with some glaring exceptions, specifically issues of worship and abominable sexual practices, such as is the case in the three verses 18, 19, and 20. In other words, here's one that says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, verse 18. And then verse 19, Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death. 
And then verse 20, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. So you see, there are some things for which God had no tolerance whatsoever, regardless of what your motivations may have been at the time. Those who lack plentiful resources are protected by the law in verses 21 through 24. That's including the foreigner to, to the land of Israel. As a matter of fact, the penalty for abuse of others in verse 24 is quite harsh. God frequently spoke through his prophets condemnations against Israel and Judah for such widespread infractions. Now, how about some banking laws? Laws regulating the lending of money. Verse 25. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me, that I will hear, for I am gracious. So we see that interest on loans could only be charged to foreigners. We actually see that over in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20. We see here in this passage, never, never, never you can you charge interest to fellow Hebrews. That's also specified, by the way, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 37. Then, beginning with verse 28 down through 31, we have some laws showing respect for the covenants between God and Israel. Verse 28, Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Thou shalt not delay to offer the first of thy ripe fruits, and of thy liquors, the firstborn of thy sons, shalt thou give unto me. Likewise shalt thou do with thine oxen and with thy sheep. Seven days it shall be with his dam. On the eighth day thou shalt give it me. And he shall be holy unto me, neither shall ye eat any flesh that is torn of beast in the field. He shall cast it to the dogs. Verse 28 there might seem a little confusing. In the King James Version it says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, plural. The wording as such in the King James creates the impression that one is to give some reverence to perhaps the gods of other nations. Actually, the Hebrew word used for gods there is the exact same word for God. It's the word Elohim in other places of Scripture. The word Elohim is plural in the Hebrew. That's what they refer to as the majestic plural. And it's translated singularly for God in most occurrences within our English Bibles. Therefore, this verse is actually to be understood as, You shall not revile God. It's not an admonition to show any kind of respect to the fake gods of the heathen nations. The Apostle Paul actually makes reference to this verse in his defense before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23, verse 5. You'll also notice that the Hebrews were to offer the firstfruits of everything to God. With regard to the offering of the firstborn sons to serve as priests, these were formally replaced by the men of the tribe of Levi, when we get over to Numbers chapter 3. Then we have in chapter 23, beginning with verse 1, some laws governing the interaction with other people. Verse 1, Thou shalt not raise a false report, put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. 
Neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. Neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee lying under the burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. Keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thou not, for I will not justify the wicked. And thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise, and perverteth the words of the righteous. Also thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. So here we see some legislative acts of consideration toward others, including non-Hebrew strangers. There's also a warning against being a false witness in legal matters. No punishment specified here. Apparently, restitution for such was determined by the judges. We also see in verses 3 and 6 that it was a no-no, big no-no, to side with a poor man in judgment simply because he was a poor man. Now, how about some rules on resting? Chapter 23, verses 10 through 19. And six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof. But the seventh year thou shalt let it rest, and lie still, that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beast of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard, and with thy olive yard. Six days thou shalt do thy work, and on the seventh day thou shalt rest, that thine ox and thine ass may rest, and the son of thy handmaid and the stranger may be refreshed. And all things that I have said unto you be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee, in the time appointed of the month of Abib, for in it thou camest from Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of the harvest, the firstfruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. The first of the firstfruits of thy land shalt thou bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. The Old Testament law was exhaustive in its regulation of daily Hebrew life. The laws contained in these verses that we just read were no less important than any other portion of the Old Testament Mosaic law. Now, there are believers who teach observance of selective laws at the exclusion of others. Well, like the ones listed here in these verses. Well, let's review a few of these laws, shall we? First of all, rest your fields every seventh year. That's also specified in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. And then, secondly, rest everything every seventh day. That's Saturday. Sabbath observance actually predates the law, the law of Moses, all the way back to creation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 
Each year, another one, observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread at the beginning of the barley harvest in the spring, which commemorates the Exodus. Now, if you'd like to see a full listing of the feasts that were to be kept, check my notes on Leviticus chapter 23 where they're specified. Then fourthly, each year observe the Feast of Harvest, also called the Feast of Weeks in Exodus chapter 34 verse 22. At the end of the spring harvest of grain is when that's commemorated, and that's commemorating the giving of the law. And then each year, lastly, in this passage, observe the feast of ingathering of the summer crops of olives and grapes in early autumn, commemorating the wilderness wanderings. Again, if you'd like to see a complete list of the feast, the festivals, and what their significance was and when they were held, Check my notes on Leviticus chapter 23. Only three of the festivals are mentioned in this passage. Unleavened bread, that begins the day following the Passover. Harvest, also known as first fruits, also known as Pentecost. And then thirdly, an ingathering, also known as booths or tabernacles. Let's face it, those who think Christians are bound to keeping the law of Moses... They've never really spent much time studying the Old Testament law. How do you suppose they systematically decide which ones they'll keep and which ones they'll deem irrelevant? There's no question that the law was given to regulate every aspect of living as a nation. The law was the constitution of the Hebrew nation. These are the guidelines by which the leadership of Israel judged all the people living within. Moses insisted that they embrace the whole system of laws, excluding nothing. It's simply fascinating that many Bible teachers today have parsed out of the list of 613 laws, the ones they think we should obey as a standard of Christian righteousness, while on the other hand, they dismiss most of the list as irrelevant to Christians today. How'd they decide? Then with the partial list of the law of Moses in hand, they'll proclaim that they obey the law. I'm reminded of the statement James makes in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. As for me, I'm very thankful that my righteousness is based upon my reception by faith of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. I'm righteous today before God because of His righteousness, not my own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He, meaning God, hath made Him, meaning Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now you'll have to admit, that's a better plan. If you're still not convinced, consider this. The question of what should be expected of new Gentile converts with respect to the Mosaic Law was the central focus at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And you'll find there in Acts chapter 15 that at the conclusion of that council, it was determined that the Gentile believers should not be required to keep the Mosaic Law. Verse 19 has an interesting provision. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. There is no expansion of this law found in Scripture, although it is mentioned again in Exodus chapter 34, verse 26, and Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21. 
There it's found in the context of clean and unclean animals or foods, should we say. Observant Jews through the centuries have expanded on this law themselves by declaring that it is not lawful to prepare meat with milk products at all. That practice does seem to extend beyond that which is specifically stated both here and in Deuteronomy chapter 14 verse 21. Chapter 23 verse 20 starts out with a promise. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. For mine angels shall go before thee, and bring thee into the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly overthrow them, and quite break down their images. And ye shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren, in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. I will send my fear before thee, and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee. And I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before thee. I will not drive them out from before thee in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beast of the field multiply against thee. By little and little I will drive them out from before thee, until thou be increased, and inherit the land. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea, even unto the sea of the Philistines, and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. God promises the conquest of Canaan in this passage. He even outlines in these verses a systematic way of moving in. Here's the plan. An angel will go before you into the land. And then God will blot out the pagan inhabitants of the land before you. But by the way, stay away from their false gods. Then we see, and by the way, this is quite interesting, that God will send hornets to clear the people out of the way over the space of something greater than one year. This provision is interesting in that the reasoning for the one year is given here as lest the land become desolate, the beast of the field multiply against thee. No covenants, by the way, are to be made with the inhabitants of the land. They are to be driven out. If you want to see something more about the hornets there, look at the notes on Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 20. Then we see this guarantee. God will keep you from harm as you move into the land. And then finally, God will establish the borders for Israel. In verse 31, they're outlined. 
And those borders are outlined again in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, way early to Abraham himself. The Red Sea is to be equated as the same geographical equivalent with the river of Egypt. That's a reference to the Nile River in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. The Sea of the Philistines, well, that's the Mediterranean Sea, and the river is the river Euphrates, which extends north into modern-day Syria. Again, if you want more information on that, look at the notes that I've written on Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. It's obvious that this is the deal the Hebrews should have stuck with. It's too bad they'll listen to the evil report of the ten spies later on and not take advantage of this great offer of miraculous, victorious pursuit. But notice verse 22. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, well, after the golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, God actually withdraws the first provision of the angel preceding them into the land when we get over to Exodus chapter 33, verses 2 and 3. That's, again, as I said, after the... Uh, after the calf incident of Exodus chapter 32, which we'll get to uh, in the next few days. Moses manages to convince God to precede them into the land once again over in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14. However, they really complicate the proposition with their rebellion over in Numbers chapter 14. That's when these Hebrews would not again obey his voice and they literally missed the deal of a lifetime. So the proposition was here. The offer from God was here. But the Hebrews just couldn't follow through. So in fact, when they do enter into the promised land, they actually don't enter under the provisions that we find specified in these verses right here. All right, now let's confirm that covenant with God. Exodus chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou, and Aaron, and Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people and they said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stones and as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, also they saw God, and did eat and drink. Actually, things seemed to be going quite well for Israel so far. 
Moses conducts a service with the Israelites and all the people proclaim all that the Lord hath said we will do and be obedient. Verse 8 says, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Well, there it is. The covenant between God and Israel is publicly ratified. Well, I must say the prospects for Israel couldn't look better at this point. Here's the big question. Will they stay united in their resolve to follow God and Moses' leadership? Well, of course, we already know that they did not maintain that resolve. And subsequently, they get enlisted for extended training. 38 years of extended training. That's seen in Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 to 38, upon the return of the spies and their rejection of the good report for going into Canaan. Then we find here Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's two sons, and the 70 of the elders of Israel catching a glimpse of God. The only visible, tangible body that God ever had was that of the incarnation of Jesus. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 of John 1 goes on to say, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Any physical manifestation of God is Jesus. Verse 10 describes this manifestation of God as more than just seeing a man. The sapphire component leads us to believe that it was quite an awesome manifestation to these folks that had this viewing. In chapter 24, beginning with verse 12, God calls Moses up to the mountain. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me, and to the mount, and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone, and a law and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us, until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. Well, God calls upon Moses to ascend the mountain. Moses appoints Aaron and Hur to manage the people while he's up there. Well, I hope they do a good job, don't you? We see in verse 18 that Moses will be gone for 40 days. We learn from Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, when Moses is talking about it later on, that Moses fasted for those 40 days. Well, just to give a little preview, by the time we get to Exodus chapter 32, the Hebrews are getting a little antsy about the long absence of Moses. It would appear that the Hebrews were not informed regarding his anticipated length of stay. We see in verse 13 that Joshua actually went with Moses up to the mountain. 
We're not told what Joshua saw or even if he was separated from Moses during their stay there. When we get over to Exodus chapter 32, verse 17, here's what we see. We see that Joshua was actually with Moses when they both hear the calf celebration going on in the camp as they descended the mountain together. By the way, it was seven days after their arrival on the mountain before God actually even spoke to Moses. We see that in verse 16. If you're Moses, you had to have a lot of patience. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton. 